This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. In today's episode, I interview Emily Maruchin. Now, you may recognize Emily's name because one of her quotes was the topic of an episode about a dozen episodes ago. You can check that out if you if you like. It was episode 50. But we have an excellent conversation. We talk about a variety of topics and touch on not one, but three quotes by Emily, both thought-provoking and very much bent towards self-improvement. We talk about how to have effective discussions with people, recognizing that there are there is really nothing at stake. We also talk about habits and the dangers of allowing those habits to become negative. And we talk about judging as a failure. Emily is a wonderful guest, a fantastic interviewee, and we had a great discussion. So without further ado, I bring you Emily Maruchin. My guest today is Emily Maruchian. Uh, thank you, Emily, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Certainly, certainly. Um, each time I've done one of these interviews, they've been a little bit different, and this is no exception. Uh, I've previously done a quote from someone that were their words. Uh, another interview was just a, a completely separate quote from either the the interviewee or myself. Um, and for this one, actually, we're going to do more than one. So um, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you came to be uh, author, poet, philosopher, um, any other any other monikers you'd like to add to that, but um, I'm sure they get, uh, the, the listeners would love to hear a little bit of your background. Sure, uh, thanks. Well, I've been, I would say, obsessed with philosophy since I was a teenager, uh, even probably before that. I had a few very early, almost near-death experiences, and they kind of got me asking the questions of, what's it all about? Why are we here? What happens after we die? So when I was a teenager, I discovered philosophy. And when I discovered philosophy, I thought, oh, yeah, this is it. This is where I'm going to find all the answers. This is what I got to do. I got to read all the books and, and learn about all the other philosophers and what they think. And of course, if anyone knows anything about philosophy, that's just a place to get more questions and to get more confused, because nobody really has the answers. So, but I fell madly in love with it and thought, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to write philosophy. I want to write about the big questions. I want to write about human beings. Why do we think the way we think? Why do we do the things we do? Habits, behavior, decision-making, religion, politics, everything. Just, just the sociology, the psychology of what it means to be a human being. And I, I found that philosophy kind of encompassed all that because you have to know a little bit about every subject to be good at philosophy. So I fell madly in love with it and I decided I was going to write some books on it. And that started my journey eventually as I branched out into psychology and other areas. I decided to incorporate that into my books as well. And so now my books are kind of a fusion of philosophy, psychology, self-help, sociology, just kind of a mixed bag, but it's all about human beings 
why do we do the things we do and how can we do life better? No, that that's great. And that's that's a really interesting perspective, I think, to to try to explain human behavior and and taking a, a really deep look at that. And that's something that I like to do here on the podcast is is take a I I wouldn't go so far as to say a philosophical approach, but I think certainly looking at ourselves and examining being being self-aware enough to know when we don't know something or when we have room for improvement. And so the idea that philosophy is a tool to better understand ourselves and the world around us is is fascinating. And I think you brought a great point um, to the forefront when you when you said that nobody has the answers. So in your philosophical pursuits, I guess my question would be, how do, how do you know or how do you think you know, perhaps is a better way to put it, when you maybe have stumbled upon something that you consider to be truth or something that you consider to be accurate? If, if nobody has the answers, how do you know that, that you do? Well, that's a very good question. And so when you start off very young in college learning philosophy, you think you do have the answers and you're like, yes, you read something it matches what, with what you somewhat already believe. And you take that as confirmation, right? That's confirmation bias. So you take that as, yes, see, I knew this was, this was correct because this dead philosopher from 500 years ago agrees with me. So, so I must have gotten it right. And then you read a little bit more and you learn different uh, ideas, different perspectives. And then you start questioning your own, like, hmm, maybe that wasn't so accurate. Maybe this guy's right. And then you read some more and then you're like, maybe this guy's right. And so I think uh, as time passes, your philosophy evolves. If I still believed what I believed at 21, I would be doing philosophy very wrong. Like that's that's not at all how it is, because I think that as we grow, as we evolve, as we have more experiences, what we think of ourselves, our lives, you know, what the world is at large changes. And I think that it's supposed to change. I don't think that we're supposed to believe the same things we believed in when we were five. I think that we're supposed to grow and evolve. I think that's that's the nature of human beings to want to expand mentally, emotionally, physically. We certainly do want to do that physically with bigger houses and better cars and you know bigger bank accounts. But I think that also goes with the mental stuff too. We want to feel more joy. We want to feel like we know more that we're experiencing more. And I think that when you go down the philosophy rabbit hole, it just it gives you that because you don't stop anywhere. And if you stop somewhere, and that's perfectly fine if you do, and you feel content in what you believe in, that's fine. And it'll give you some peace. It'll give you some happiness. You'll feel like you have kind of life figured out. And you'll just probably generally stop in that area, which happens to a lot of people. But that's just, it's not my goal in philosophy. My goal is to just constantly be expanding and thinking about other perspectives, other ideas, and expanding my own knowledge of what I think I know. So to answer your question, um, I think there's a deep knowing in all of us. When you get a piece of information that feels like, yeah, this kind of feels true. The only thing about that is I would add now to that because it feels true now. It might not feel true later. It might not even feel true 10 minutes from now. It's just sometimes it just resonates with you and it feels like this piece of information feels 
truthful, it feels right. And that there's this kind of internal resonance, this matching of frequencies with the information. But I think that it changes as you grow, as you have different experiences, as you're in different states, even emotional states, mental states, those views change. Yeah. And I I think that's a really interesting perspective on self-growth. I mean, you mentioned that, um, you know, the, the, one of the nice things about the philosophical pursuits is that you, you're always growing and always learning. There is not a, there is not an ultimate, uh, there is not an end to, to it unless you, unless you choose. And as you said, it's fine to choose to pause, um, your pursuit. It's, it's fine to take a moment and, and appreciate what you've achieved in your, growth of self-awareness and in your understanding of the world but you said that's not for you so how how do you maintain the hunger and the passion how do you continue to pursue that self-growth because i think that's something that my listeners uh, you know and and certainly myself uh, appreciate is that self-growth takes work it is it is m- far easier much as it is with junk food or lounging around on the couch those are the easier pursuits but it's not necessarily the best for us because if we do want to grow and and change we have to to take a strain we have to take on a a burden as it were to be self-aware and recognize when we where we fall short and then have the desire and then the fortitude to go forward to change that so how do you continually maintain that um, in your pursuits curiosity i think if you're not just generally a curious person, you will settle on certain piece of information and just accept it as your truth or accept it as a fact and just be okay with that. And and that's fine too. Lots of people do that. They're very happy in their lives. They're, they're fine with whatever religion they've chosen or whatever worldview they've chosen and they're happy and content in it. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, I'm happy and content in the idea that there's more to discover. There's more to explore. There's knowledge out there that I can, I can know, I can reach, I can grow to. And I think that, that, idea that the that life is a mystery and it's always unfolding and I get to be a part of that is exciting it's fun and it keeps me curious anytime I I get to a point where I feel like okay well this this feels right and I feel kind of settled into it I find myself getting very bored and when I start getting mentally bored I start feeling more depressed I start not wanting to be more physical not wanting to exercise resigning to more of the sit on the couch Netflix kind of uh, lifestyle, because if my mind is not stimulated, then I don't have that energy pumping through me like, oh, yes, like life is an adventure. Let me figure out what's going out, you know, what's going on next. Like, what am I going to learn next? Like what, what amazing, stimulating piece of information can I boggle my own mind with? Certainly. No, that's, that that's great, and I I can absolutely relate to the the curiosity, the constant pursuit, the the lifelong learner mentality. To use a, a kind of cliche phrase, um, yes, and, and and that's fantastic. Um, and this this kind of lends itself to the the first quote that we're going to talk about of yours today. Um, so if you would please, um, you know, go ahead read the quote, and then maybe you can give us a little bit of background once once you're complete with the with the quote itself on on how you came to uh, originate those words. Sure. Okay, so here's quote number one. Cognitive inflexibility 
is the unwillingness to consider any other perspective than your own. It keeps you stuck in your own worldview and prevents you from learning or growing. Growth requires not just exposure to the new, but also the willingness to entertain it as the possible truth. If you shut it down because it doesn't validate your current understandings, then your current understandings will never develop. You will stay in a fixed mindset your whole life, making it difficult for you to change anything within it. That's great. And I think this is a quote from a, a few years ago, um, if if my memory serves. I know I've had it um, in, in my book uh, for quite some time and, yes. and chewed on it a number of times myself. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about you know where it originated, what, what brought that to the forefront of your mind, and kind of maybe what you were going through at the time? Because it's not, it's not often that I have somebody who I can actually ask, you know, when you thought these words, when you put these words on paper or typed these words – um, what was your thought process? So where were you, um, as much as you can remember about what was going on at the time when, when these words came to you? Sure. So, um, as someone who loves, uh, discourse, who loves conversation and even a little bit of debate, um, I like to talk to other people about their different viewpoints on things. But uh, a few years back, I started to notice that people were getting a little bit more agitated and frustrated in their conversations. And it was very hard to maintain that open-minded conversation with people. And it seems like every single conversation I was trying to have ended up in a very emotional debate. It was emotional reactions, explosive reactions. People were feeling very stressed. Uh, and so I kind of sat down after uh, one conversation where I tried to talk to someone about something and they were just not having it. It was just like, like talking to a wall. And I had to stop the conversation pretty early. And I came home and I was thinking about the conversation. This is something I usually do when I have conversations with people. I'll sit down later and I'll think about the conversation. I'll think about their points, what they, what good points they made, what were not good points. I'll, I'll see if I can let it marinate in my mind a little bit, see if they had anything that was wise that I could kind of take on and integrate into my own understandings. And sometimes I'll reflect back on what went wrong in the conversation. Like, where was I not being open-minded? Where was I being, you know, using my own uh, biases and being closed-minded? And so I realized that this conversation had left me feeling very frustrated and it was because I was feeling like I wasn't being heard and the other person was just completely shut off to what I was saying, which is perfectly okay. That's their right to do that. And then I realized that I was actually starting to get emotional too, and that I was being pulled into that, that dynamic of, you know, letting your emotions kind of get the best of what you're saying. So I was thinking about, well, how can I be more cognitively flexible? And then I thought, hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting word, cognitively flexible. And I was thinking about how I had done yoga earlier that day, and I hadn't done it in like two weeks or something like that. And my muscles were aching as I was trying to do it. And I was thinking of how inflexible I was becoming because I had stopped doing it. And so then I started thinking about, wow, so cognitively, co cognitively inflexible so that would be someone who's like, let's say, not practicing opening their minds regularly, not stretching out their minds to make it easier for them to continuously do so. And so then I started thinking about, well, where am I feeling cognitively inflexible and where I could use a little bit more practice in that department? 
And then I started thinking about, so what does that mean? Like, how would I define this term cognitively inflexible? And so then these words essentially came to me and I, I wrote them down really quick and I, I put it in a little graphic and I shared it on uh, Instagram for my followers. And then people had very, uh, very interesting reactions to it. Like, oh, wow, this is this is incredible. I've never thought about it this way. How do I stay, you know, more flexible mentally? And, and so it just kind of became a conversation, but it was, it was essentially born out of uh, a conversation that did not go well. And I was kind of a little frustrated with it. And those are really the best because every time I have one of those, I come home and something really great is born out of it because I'll, I will sit there and think about it and think about where I could have done things differently, what I could have said differently. So every time I have those kinds of conversations, usually it'll end up as a chapter in a book or as an excerpt or a quote somewhere, because it's just, I'm willing to sit with it and see what, how we could have been better. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I love the analogy of the, the mind is a muscle and it's imperfect. Um, but it is a, it is certainly an easy to wrap our head around way to approach. Um, kind of thinking about how our mind works. And I think you made a, a great point when you, you mentioned the, the stretching and the growth. And, you know, if, if you're like me and I've done yoga uh, as well, and everybody enjoys a, a, a good stretch, um, mostly mm-hmm. after the fact, but sometimes during. And uh, I think the thing that I've found is that in that active stretching, it's, it's astonishing just how much heat you can generate just how oh, hot, sure. <laughs> hot your body can get. I mean, you've seen yoga mats covered in sweat and that all of that is just from the simple act of stretching and, and, right. and holding positions. And that idea of doing that with our minds is, is certainly fascinating. And I, I, I wonder, I found myself wondering as you were, as you were speaking about that topic, if that's something where you would almost view it as a as a, a mental yoga practice, if that would be a, a proper comparison um, to say that that's kind of how you approach things is, is it, it's a practice um, to, to do it. Sure. The more you practice yeah. like anything, the better, the better you get at that, at that activity. And that, whether that's stretching muscles or, or stretching your mind. Um, and I, I certainly agree. I mean, I do this, I do the same thing in conversations with folks, uh, especially ones that go poorly, as you mentioned, is you do the postmortem. You come home after the fact or in the car on the way home or or whatnot, and, and you, you wonder what went wrong or what, what could right. have gone better. Where was the disconnect? How did we end up initially talking to each other and eventually talking past each other? Um, and, and, and I right. think that's a big challenge. So to, to see your words here and, and the comparison of cognitive inflexibility is, and how that relates to growth um, and, and what have you is is really a very interesting analogy for the way that we think about the world. Um, so is this something that you find yourself being able to regularly um, practice? Do you circle back to these words when you find yourself in those moments? Um, sure. Yeah. And, and and the thing is that it's, it's um, sometimes it's hard to remember in the moment because conversations will start off one way and then they'll quickly veer off to another direction. And before you even realize where it's gone, you're kind of already in the middle of it. 
So it, it can be really difficult where it starts off very civil and you're listening to each other. And then a topic comes up that's maybe like a hot button issue and it becomes more emotional and you just kind of have to take a pause internally and take a step back from it. And uh, what I'd like to do is I like to remind myself that there's nothing at stake here. So because when your mind begins to uh, become defensive, defensive ultimately means you're protecting something. So I like to remind myself that I'm not protecting anything because nothing is being threatened. It's just a conversation. Uh, that person cannot take anything away from me. I still get to walk away with whatever it is I choose to believe. I'm still going to do whatever it is that I'm going to do because I choose to do it. So if that person wants to express their worldview and their ideas about the topic, that's okay. And if they're showing emotion about it, it means that they care about this issue. Most likely it's a, it's a safety issue. It's a, it's a deep security issue or whatever it is. And that's okay. And that person can have that. I'm not going to try to take that away from them, try to make them feel more anxious in the world by, by maybe trying to force them to adopt my worldview, which might not work in their world. Because if we're coming from different worlds, maybe their worldview is perfectly logical in their world and what they believe. So if I try to force mine on them, then maybe if they even adopted it, it would go horribly wrong for them. Maybe my worldview is just not right in their world. So I try to remind myself of these things, try not to push too hard, because there's no point, there's no trophy for either of us to win. So it's just I try to lower the stakes in conversations and go just go, this is a conversation we are having, they get to express themselves, I get to express myself, I know I'm going to go home and think about this and and try to take out those little nuggets of wisdom that I heard, I know that I'm going to find value in this conversation. So if I can just like, keep my tone a little bit, you know, lower, and uh, maybe explain things a little bit more calmly, then maybe they will take home some nuggets of wisdom too that they can think about later. If they don't, that's fine too. But the point is that just lower the stakes and try not to defend or protect anything because the other person can't take anything away from you. Even if they're like, no, that's a completely stupid belief. You are 100% wrong. That's okay. It still doesn't change your belief and it still doesn't change your viewpoint and it doesn't have to if you don't want it to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that the the nothing is at stake here is is very very important because I'm sure that all of the listeners out there that are that are are hearing the words that you're saying can and have already as I have harken back to recent disputes that they've had with people and thought of the last time they were at Thanksgiving with a family member or the last time they went out on the weekend with friends and and the conversation devolved into an argument or or a heated debate and that I think that's a critical piece to those things is that when you enter the the intellectual arena and you joust with ideas as it's been described in the past um, that there really isn't anything at stake you came with a set of views you're expressing that set of views the other person did the same and is expressing their views. And at the end of the day, neither one of you is required to take anything from the other person's point of view, and they can't take anything from you. So worst case, you've lost some time, you've expended some energy, but at the, at the end of the day, you get to go home with your with your beliefs and your ideas 
regardless of anything that the other person said or did in the course of that conversation. And that could be very hard, I think, for people to wrap their minds around because everything comes across as a as for a lot of people in a lot of conversations as an existential crisis. If I don't win sure. this argument, um, then then I am a, I am lesser. I am uh, I, I take a lower station in life. If I don't come out victorious, if I can't get that that victory in this discussion, as opposed to we are exchanging ideas. There may be some things that are said in the course of this conversation that are of value to the other person, and vice versa. And that can be the benefit of that entire discourse may just be one or two little pieces that you take away from it. But at the grand, in the at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, there really is nothing at stake here. And I do I do like that a lot. Thank you. And one more thing I want to add to this is that uh, recently, since last year, since COVID started, uh, there's another thing I remind myself, which is that in uncertain times, in uh, times where where everyone's kind of has this low level of anxiety about not being sure about what's going to come next, what's going to happen, how things are going to unfold. The only thing that people are sure of is what they already believe. That becomes a kind of anchor for them. And they hold on to it for dear life because everything around them is, is changing and shifting. And it's a very, very scary and uncertain and unsecure place to be. And this is why people get very, very heated when you try to talk to them about anything going on in related to COVID. They will immediately explode as if you are saying, you know, your world is about to get flipped upside down. And that's what it feels like for a lot of people. So they like to hold on to their past knowledge, their past beliefs, or even make new stuff up with conspiracy theories or whatever it is, because believing in that or feeling like you understand what's going on gives you this sense of security and the sense of, oh, look, I know what's going on. I get what's happening. And that that knowledge, that certainty of knowledge gives you a sense of relief and it gives you a sense of security within you and it grounds you to the moment as opposed to saying, hey, look, I don't know what the heck's going on. You know, I, I feel really anxious and I feel really uncertain, just like everybody else. And that's okay. We are not okay in the anxiety and in the uncertainty. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. I have not. But that was that was my first real introduction into philosophy when I was, I think, maybe 19 or 20. Someone uh, suggested that book to me and said, hey, you should read this book. And I read it and I was like, OK, yes, I am definitely going to major in philosophy. And that's what made me do it. And basically, the book essentially says that we are anxious creatures and we are constantly living in uncertainty and we come up with all these things that we want to believe in because we want to get away from that feeling. But that feeling is normal and natural and exists for all the other animals on this planet. But we are constantly trying to drink it away, eat it away, you know, screw it away and smoke it away and everything so that we can ignore the feeling of being these creatures on this planet that are anxious and unsure about what tomorrow will bring which is natural. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I jotted down a, a, 
I guess what I had considered to be kind of a truism that I've heard before, which is fear is a is a significant motivator of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And I sure. think just based off of what you said, I may have to amend my my truism. That's why I said I thought it was a truism, truishism <laughs> maybe. Um, but I may have to amend that to uncertainty is a yes. motivator of of human behavior because I think that's a better explanation because uncertainty doesn't nece- isn't necessarily founded in fear. I don't think. I think it's just a a, a not knowing. And uh, right. certainly fear can manifest and that can certainly lead us to things. But I think you're right. I think uncertainty is probably the is, is probably the reason that some people do become as defensive as as they do about certain topics, because it gives them a sense of control, something that they can hold on to when everything around them seems to be crumbling, falling apart and doesn't make sense. The thing that they know is 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 their rock and if they give that up in that discussion in no matter how heated or no matter how logically they or emotionally they could they could be convinced uh to change their mind they won't because right giving up that one thing means that now they truly or at least maybe they feel like they truly have nothing left at that point right it's it's that certainty of knowledge that i know what's coming up next. I know what's going on that kind of relieves that sense of anxiety. And frankly, I think that we are lying to, my, lying to ourselves if we think that we know anything that's going to happen in our lives. Even if you jot down tomorrow's schedule, you still don't know what tomorrow is going to bring you. No, that is, that is certainly true. And, you know, I think, um, I think the, the second quote that you bring up is, is, is some of that, because when we're in um, in a lot of these discussions and in a lot of these debates or these exchanges or these these intellectual jousts that we find ourselves in, um, there there are a series of rapid fire things that come our way. And so I think this leads nicely into kind of how we handle those individual moments and those individual decisions. So um, if you want to jump into the second quote, I think that that fits this dovetails nicely. Sure. The average person makes 35,000 decisions a day. How many did you make today that will get you closer to success, to better health, to thriving relationships, to a happier life? Pay attention to the type of results you're getting and you'll know the answer. Yeah, and and I love this quote. I think it's it's synced and it's beautiful and it is one of those things that really puts into perspective because we all know that we we make a variety of decisions throughout the day from the moment your eyes open. I mean, arguably even before you open your eyes, the first decision of the day is probably to open your eyes. And then from there it's a cascade of decisions, each one affecting the last or each one affecting the next and creating a new decision and a new chain of events as a result of those things. And those chains can lead to good places and they can lead to bad places. And I think the the thing that I take away from a quote like this from, from you is you make those 35 decisions a day, but there's always a pause, right? The day ends at some point and that decision chain starts over the next day. And certainly there's some carryover from decisions made previously to our, to the next day, but I like the idea that you kind of get a reset. So so again, kind of the same thing with the first quote. Where where did this come from? What prompted this thought from you? Um, and and why did it stick? And why did it make its way onto paper? Um, I was looking into um, habits because I was looking into. I was actually reading something about habits and how to change habits, and that's where I came across the thirty five thousand decisions in day study that they had done, averaging about that's that's how many decisions we make during the day. 
you brush your teeth, you don't brush your teeth, you pick up your phone, you don't pick up your phone, you take this treat, you take that treat. Every little thing is just absolutely everything you do in life is a decision, including our conversation here. I could choose to sit down for it. I could choose to walk around for it, maybe get some extra steps on my, my iWatch. You know, so every little thing that you choose is a decision. But how much of those decisions are conscious decisions versus habitual decisions? And that's something I was writing about in... Uh, I can't remember if it was a book or a course. And so I was looking up habits and how the brain works in regards to habits, the you know neurobiology of habits and, and just the science behind it and so on and so on so I can get a better understanding of how human beings work with habits. And the thing is that we are basically all habits. We are very habitual creatures. If we are not aware, if we are not conscious, if we don't do the pause, like you said, before choosing we are going to habitually create our entire day over and over and over the same way until someone brings us something we weren't expecting, until someone throws us off our schedule and now we have to react in a different way. And usually those reactions are habitual too. So when we think of habits, we often think of like physical or behavioral habits. We think like we eat too much junk food and that's a behavioral problem. But um, why do you eat? the junk food as opposed to the healthier food because the junk food makes you feel better right so you could i mean it's not that you ran out of broccoli and you can't go to the store you're just not choosing the broccoli because the junk food actually physically gives you a better sensation so what i've learned in in kind of researching habits and why we choose what we choose is that habits are actually emotional habits all habits all habits are emotional so we are either trying to trigger an emotion within us or trying to avoid triggering an emotion within us. So if, you know, even let's say like a really simple decision you make to get up and even though you don't want to do it, you brush your teeth every single morning. And you might think that's not an emotional habit. I'm brushing my teeth so my teeth won't rot. Okay. But so that's the consequence, right? My teeth won't rot. I won't end up on the dentist chair because that's painful. So you are still doing that to avoid future pain later. You're avoiding the pain. You're avoiding the hassle. So you're choosing to do this thing, even though it's two minutes and it's annoying and it's this, that. You're still doing it to avoid a future negative emotion. So when you choose to send that text, not send that text, go to work, not go to work, decide to blow off work, every single decision you make whether it's habitual or not, it's usually regarding some kind of emotion you want to create within yourself, trigger within yourself, or a negative emotion you want to avoid triggering. So all behavioral habits are really emotional habits, um, especially around negative emotions like anxiety, anger, upset. When we feel those emotions, we will habitually reach for, let's say, the ice cream or the pizza or turn on the Netflix or you know, punch a wall or whatever the, the physical habit is. But the whole point of doing the physical habit is to relieve the emotional habit. So, so if you want to change your physical habits, you would have to work on processing your emotional habits better. So if you and uh, your wife or your kids or your friend get into a fight and your emotional habit is to always retreat, 
to always shut down communication and go away, that is an emotional habit. Even though you are physically walking away, it's an emotional habit. You are saying that I cannot handle this upset within me. I don't know what to do with the upset within me. So it's triggering my physical behavior to walk away. So what you would work on instead of staying there and feeling all those emotions would be to work on the emotions so that you know how to process it better and you can stay there as opposed to just kind of suffering through it or just avoiding it altogether. Sure. So every single decision, every single decision is uh, related to some kind of emotion you want to feel or you want to avoid feeling. So um, to go back to what you asked, I realized I just rambled a little bit there. Um, it, I was just looking into the uh, world of habits and whether or not, because I, because initially I thought it was just about physical habits. Just don't do the thing that you're doing that is causing this negative result, and that's the end of it. And but that was not the end of it because it's all related to emotions. It's all related to emotional processing. It's all related to your emotional habits and whether you know how to manage your anger, your sadness, your uncertainty, the feelings of anxiety and uncertainty. And if you just keep doing the same things that you keep doing, you're just going to keep getting the same exact results and nothing is going to change for you. Absolutely. So would you say then if we accept that physical habits are emotional habits and therefore the avoidance of or the pursuit of a specific emotion, if if your habit is based around the avoidance of an emotion, is it by default then a bad habit? Uh, it can be a lot of them are right because um, drugs, alcohol, the kind of distracting the emotion through something else. Anytime you distract an emotion, or you repress it, or uh, you don't want to actually feel it and sit in it, you are kind of saying, uh, not now emotion. But the emotion doesn't go away. The emotion doesn't get processed. The emotion doesn't move through you. And so it comes back every time it's triggered in the same way and sometimes even worse. And it just kind of continues the cycle over and over and over again. So as you continue to avoid the emotion, the emotion is just kind of like hanging out there like, hey, I know you don't want to look at me. You don't want to see me, but I'm not going anywhere. And then I'll, you just get triggered over and over again. And then usually as you get triggered, it gets worse because emotions uh, need to be processed. They they need to move through you. And if they don't move through you, they'll just kind of hang around until they're triggered over and over and over again. So I guess then the, the next question would be, so there are certain things that we, we do want to avoid, certain emotions and certain feelings that we do want to avoid, um, extreme hurt, extreme pain, uh, betrayal, certain certain triggering events like that. Um, and And one could argue, I guess, maybe that the emotion or the avoidance of that emotion is our reminder not to engage in that particular activity. So in processing and moving beyond, um, do you think that there's the potential that somebody forgets to how to avoid those things? If you, if you don't hold on to something, if you don't maintain some memory of a difficult time, a difficult emotion, a difficult interaction, then how do you avoid finding yourself in that same place again and hurt or betrayed or, or in pain again? Well, I think that if you go through the process, if you go through the healing process of the hurt or the betrayal, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to go right into that kind of 
experience. If it only takes you one time to touch the the you know hot stove to know that you do not want to do that again. You don't have to have emotions about the hot stove, right? You can process your emotions about the hot stove. It hurt really bad. Wow, I feel kind of like a dumbass for doing that. And you blame yourself for it because usually in times where there are betrayal and there's hurt, a lot of that betrayal and hurt and, and those negative emotions come from feeling like you're the stupid one. Like I was the foolish one. Why did I trust you? And why did I do this? And why did I do that? So you're really more upset with yourself than you are with the other person. A lot of people blame themselves in situations like that. And so they want to hold on to that feeling because A, they don't want to forgive themselves. And B, they think that by by keeping this hurt alive, they're not going to be foolish enough to take, to take the other person back or to continue to trust the other person. But the issue is not whether or not uh, the hurt healing will make you take the other person back because it won't. Because if you process it, if you process any kind of lesson that you learn, you integrate it into your own wisdom. You become wise enough to see red flags, to see it coming beforehand. Because a lot of times in situations like that, you're upset with yourself because maybe you saw the flags and you decided to discount your own wisdom, your own intuition, and decided to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt or whatever, just decided to close your eyes to it. And that's really what you're upset about. And that's really what you're hurt about. But if you process it, you learn to forgive yourself, you learn to move through it, then what will happen is you will integrate the wisdom and you'll be able to see it. And this happens a lot with people where, you know, the relationship you were in when you were 16, you know, remember what that was like? I mean, who wasn't foolish in a relationship like that? And you got hurt and they hurt you and you hurt them and you hurt each other. And then, but as you grow and as you mature and as you integrate those lessons, you don't act like a 16 year old when you're 30 or you're 35 or you're 40. Each new relationship gives you more wisdom, more experience. But that doesn't mean you're carrying your hurt from one relationship to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, because that's going to stay in between you two. That's going to stay in the space between you and your partner if you're carrying your old, old hurts or old partner issues into the next one and into the next one. So integrating the lesson into your experience is always a good thing because it will make you wiser and you will not choose, you will not make those same mistakes. In fact, holding onto the hurt is more likely to make you choose the same thing again and again, as opposed to healing the hurt and letting it move through you. Certainly. And and I guess one of the best and also worst parts of, you know, the human condition, I guess, is that as soon as you move past one thing, there's another set of, of challenges awaiting you and another set of decisions and another 35,000 decisions to be made the next day. And the just the, the weight of all that, when you consider that, you know, a day is, is 86,400 seconds, that for you to make a decision, for you to make 35,000 decisions in a day means that you're making a decision once every couple of seconds throughout the day and that that can be a heavy weight so what do you say to somebody who is who, who heard that thirty five thousand decisions a day number and thought I, I i don't know how to do that i don't know how to manage each one of those individual decisions in such a way that i do get those positive results i do have better health or better relationships or or healthier a healthier life or a healthier existence um what do you say to somebody who just feels overwhelmed by the number of decisions that it, that, that they are asked to make in any given day 
Well, the good news is that by making small changes, you can actually make a lot of big changes in the long run. Just shifting small aspects of your day. It doesn't have to, your day doesn't have to be radically different than it was the day before. You can make small shifts, small shifts to it. And I don't know if you've read the book Atomic Habits, but um, I can't remember the name of the author, but he makes a very good point um, of saying that small habits um, performed over time actually lead to enormous changes and they are much more sustainable than going full cold turkey on something or deciding I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to hit the gym for two hours, I'm going to eat only this and just going ahead, full steam ahead on, on a change. That's not sustainable. It's not going to last. So what you want to do is you want to change maybe two, three things going forward. Uh, nothing too big, nothing too out of the ordinary because we are habitual creatures. So you don't want to hit your brain with too much new stuff immediately because it will rebel against you 100% because the brain likes what it already knows. So you want to just shift what you already know just a little bit. So if you're used to walking like 15 minutes a day, make it 20 minutes a day and then do that for two weeks and then make it 30 minutes a day. Just add on to habits that you already have just a little bit more or shift your habits slightly. So if you want to go on a diet, don't do a full entire whole day diet. Do just diet and uh, for breakfast. Just change breakfast. And then as you change breakfast for two months, three months, four months, then add lunch. And then as you do that for a few months, then add dinner. And now your whole entire day's eating has changed in like, let's say a nine month period. And you can sustain that as opposed to waking up tomorrow and going, nope, I'm changing everything all in one day. And maybe that'll last a month, maybe not. So you're better off doing small habits, little at a time. Uh, same thing with emotions. If it's an emotional habit, uh, sitting with your emotions as they come up, you're, you're feeling boredom. Hey, that's okay. Boredom is not going to kill you. Sit with the boredom just for a few minutes breathe through it, relax through it, see if something creative comes up in your mind. Maybe you can do something uh, you haven't done, like write or paint or put on some music and dance. Try something different than what you would normally habitually choose if you're bored, like just picking up my phone and scrolling through Instagram, which would be a habitual habit of boredom. So um, sit with, and that'll take you two minutes to do. Just sit with the boredom, see if you have another... Um, idea coming up about what you can do with it. If you feel upset, sit with the upset for a little bit, see what comes up. So you just, like you said before, you just pause for a few moments, sit with the emotions, sit with the thoughts. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't, there's nothing at stake here. It's okay. Even if you messed up on your diet for that day, or if you messed up and you didn't go for that run, that's fine. Nothing's at stake here. Nothing's a big deal. You can always start again tomorrow. It doesn't change anything. I think that we have to kind of bring down the stakes a little bit in everything we do. It seems like we've gotten to the point where everything is high stakes. Like it's all or nothing. I got to I gotta go all in or, you know, it says something bad about me and I, I have to win this argument or else it says something bad about me and I, I have to lose every single one of these pounds. I can't be off by a pound or else it says something bad about me. It's like we've, we've created these high stakes in everything we do. We've put so much pressure on ourselves. It's like, it's okay. Just, just take it easy. Take it one day at a time. Take it one habit at a time. Take it one emotion at a time. And just be easy with yourself. You're, you're, you're not trying to win the game of life. It's, it's, 
it's that's not how it works. No, that that that's true. And so, you know, it, it, rather than try to change thirty five thousand decisions, change one decision. Take it. Take a small sure. step. You know, it that reminds we, me. One is better than none. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's you know those as you said atomic habits. Um, you know, one small step done repeatedly and built upon can lead to substantial change. And it reminds me that. Um, you know, something that I've talked about before and something that I've, I've implemented myself is, you know, the, the old new year's resolution thing, everybody waits for the new year. And then there's all these massive grand ideas about how we're going to change and what's going to be different once the clock strikes midnight on, on January 31st. And so many of those fail. And, and the advice that I heard given once, and I, and I love it is maybe don't make the decisions and to, to go to the gym for two hours a day, make a decision make one minute resolutions, make those, make decisions about things that you're going to do for one minute a day. If it's, I'm going to work out, I'm going to work out for one minute. Well, most people don't just work out for one minute, but it sets the bar low. It makes it an approachable change, something that you can actually accomplish. And you get that sense of accomplishment. If you say you're going to go to the gym for two hours and you only go for an hour and a half, you've fallen short of your goal. But if you set a one minute goal to work out or a one minute guitar practice session or one minute of learning a new language or one minute of changing the way that you approach a conversation uh, with with a, right. a difficult family member or friend, um, then when you achieve that one minute, you get that sense of accomplishment. And very often that will grow into other uh, areas of change. And those that one minute will become five minutes, will become 10 minutes. And so too, your 35,000 decisions, excuse me, 35,000 decisions that you make on a daily basis, if you change one of those, there's a good chance you're going to change more than one in a day. And that's going to turn into two and five and 10 and so on. And before you know right, it, exactly. major changes are occurring in your life. So I, I really do. Um, I really like that sentiment. Um, and I appreciate you for bringing that up. Um, sure. And as you, as you feel confident in that one decision change, it's going to immediately make you make other changes without even really realizing it or planning to it's just going to start snowballing yeah absolutely and and before you know it it's it, it's often an enjoyable exercise for me to look back i mean the thing that i like to do at the end of a, a year rather than i used to create lists of resolutions that i i like but one of the things that are resolutions that i would like to accomplish and that used to be the thing and i found myself like most people falling short on most of them most of the time and so now instead, as I approach the end of a new year, and there's really no reason to tie it to the end of the year, it could be the end of a week, the end of a month, the end of a day even, is look back over the period of time in question and and, and look at what's changed. Look at how different I am from the beginning of the day, the beginning of the week, beginning of the month, or the, the beginning of the year in this case, and say, wow, a lot has changed over this time. Because we, we see it in macro scale. You know, you can look now, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, you're not the same person you were when you were 16. You don't make the same decisions. You don't think the same way. And some of that is almost unavoidable. You just kind of learn as you go. But for people like you and I and a lot of those listening, it's a deliberate change. We do it on purpose. We don't want to be the same person. And we can see it 10 years after the fact. But taking a smaller look at that and appreciating that can be a really, really effective way, I think, of ensuring that we we appreciate and recognize that we are changing in the micro scale and it doesn't have to be something that we only see when we look back and go man last decade i was a very different person than i am now right growth whether that growth is mental emotional spiritual whatever area we apply it to 
requires a willingness and openness to it. So you have to participate in growth. It's a verb. It's something you do. So in your decisions, in your habits, in your conversations, it's something that you have to participate in. Or else if you don't, then you fall back on those old habits. You kind of get stuck in that cognitive inflexibility, which is ultimately just saying, um, I know what I already know. You are kind of unwilling to be open to the growth. So you get stuck in what you've already known. And and you make this so easy, Emily, I have to say. You make the interview process so easy because you've naturally done it again, brought us right to the point where I think we're ready for, you know, the third quote of of the episode. Um, And it it is about that very topic. It's about growth. And uh, I think this one will really hit home. Uh, with the listeners, because I know it did for me. I know when when we were talking about what we wanted to discuss on the podcast, um, you know, this this quote, specifically the very last line of this quote, is is just just drives right to the heart of of the issue. And um, and and I say that to give the listeners some context before they get started. But really, you know, listener, as as Emily reads this, listen to the to the entirety of the quote. But the very last part of the last line is is really what what hit it for me. So. Uh, Go ahead, Emily, please. It's easier to recognize and appreciate your growth after you've grown. It's much more difficult to see it in the process because the process includes repeated failures. So you think you're screwing it all up. Then one day you have an opportunity to react the same old way and you don't. You feel differently now because you grew from your experiences. That's when you finally recognize your growth. That's when you finally see that there's no such thing as failure if you put it to good use. And again, the last part of that, there's no such thing as failure if you put it to good use. And of course, that sounds like something that you would see on a, on a motivational poster hanging on a wall somewhere. And, and there's a good reason, because we all fail. It's part of the human condition. And we all have a choice. One of our many, many thousands of decisions that we make in a day is when we fail, how do we respond to that failure? And then even in that response to that failure, how do you frame that failure going forward? So Emily, can you talk a little bit about, you know, just the the process of failure? I mean, you you are an author. You have put a lot of content out into the world, both in your voice, in your words, books, and I'm certain that that you've had experienced failures along the way. Um, and and how has your response to those failures changed and evolved and and grown over time to to lead you to where you are today? Sure. Well, I think of failure as (sighs) failure is a judgment. Failure is you seeing something that you had planned would go one way and doesn't go that way. And ultimately, when you look at it in hindsight, It does not feel like failure. Uh, That's the thing about growth. And that's the thing about uh, success. You really only recognize it in hindsight. You really only see it when you're looking back on it. And you go, "Hmm, I don't know if that was a failure because it redirected me in this direction. And it provided me this knowledge, this information, Going back to the conversations that I think 
are failures. And I, I, I come home and I think, oh man, I really feel like I could have reached that person. I really dropped the bomb in that conversation. It was such a failure. But then I'll sit down and I'll write about it and I'll learn from it. And I'll get a really great quote from it. And here we are talking about it, you know, and that that cognitive inflexibility quote was all about a failure in a conversation for me. And so so was that conversation a failure? It wasn't because look where we are now and, look, you know, we're talking about it and other people are learning from what I deem to have been a failure, which was just a judgment on my part in that moment. It was, I had this idea of how it was going to go. It was going to be this great conversation. We were both going to walk away from it feeling like we had grown. We had learned something like high-fiving each other and it's all wonderful. And that didn't happen. So it felt like a failure. It felt like I had dropped the ball. But did I drop the ball, you know, or did that conversation go exactly how it needed to go? Because I grew so much from that conversation. And that was just one simple conversation. It didn't even last very long. So if, if something that small can can produce something that we're talking about now for about an hour then think of all the bigger failures like the failures on on like business in relationships and all these things are just so painful when you're going through it but is it redirecting redirecting you is it teaching you are you learning from it are you becoming better from it and in hindsight, you will see that it's not failure, that you judged it as failure in the moment because it didn't go the way that you were planning it to go. And sometimes uh, the stuff is just, you know, not in our hands. It's not it's not in our plan. Sure. Yeah. And I've said this about, you know, personal relationships in the past. And I think it's one of the things that has gotten me through difficult times because I think we've all experienced challenging relationships, be they family, friends, um, significant others. Um, it's failure failures happen and or things don't go the way that you had originally planned them to go no very very few people marry their their first sweetheart or find themselves in a long-term relationship with that person that lasts a lifetime it very rarely does that happen and the thing that i like to say and it's it's very true to me is i couldn't be here if i hadn't been there and that includes oh, yeah, all the failures and shortcomings and flaws and errors and mistakes and misjudgments and miscalculations that that went with it. In order to be in this exact place where I'm at today, in order for you and I to be having the conversation that we're having right here, right now, a series of steps had to be touched in the exact order that they were touched for our world circles to overlap for this brief period of time for this hour hour or so of time that we have and to me that that makes it all okay it's it's a weird thing it makes the failures okay it makes them acceptable it makes them a part of a bigger process and not just simply an end to something that didn't go the way that i wanted it to Right. And imagine where you would be if at like, let's say 16 years old, you made every single perfect decision ever from then on, where would you be mentally? Yeah. And, and what would you have left? I mean, you, you started off the episode describing how you constantly pursue. It's a curiosity. It drives you, it pulls you forward, you know, to not to put words in your mouth, but that's the vision that I see is that there's this there's this force out there that is pulling you ever forward, pulling you forward into growth and into experiences and into uh, self-examination and world examination. And if if you did, if you got it all right, right out of the gate, 
what what's left to do at that point? What's right. left what's to the pursue? Point? Exactly, exactly. And I think that you know, so failure is, and and again, it's a cliche, but failure is an opportunity. You know, and if it is just a judgment, if failure is a judgment, then then we can reframe it. We have control over that. We can choose to see it in a different light and see it and seize it as an opportunity. Right. Absolutely. And so, I, you know, again, I really I really think that that is if if nothing else um, from this, the 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 there's no such thing as failure if you put it to good use is a valuable tool for all of us because we all do make those mistakes um and so you know we we started off talking about cognitive inflexibility we went into you know the decision making that we we do on a daily basis and what what it's yielding us as a result and and we talked about the the results of some of those decisions are going to be failures and what do you do with those failures well you 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 transform them into growth um and i think that's i think that's great um i do have a, a curiosity as an as you're an author something that has uh that i've been chewing on in my own mind about the writing process is um mm-hmm. maybe you can explain to the listeners and 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 me even um uh, a little bit of what your process is for writing. I mean you've penned many a book at this point um and so maybe you can talk a little bit through the process of it because I think it's a daunting task for a lot of people to imagine writing an entire book. The you see a tome of a couple hundred pages or more and you go I don't even know how to begin or where to begin or what the process is. How do I even know that I have something worth writing? So what is that process like for you as an author? So um, my process now is very different than what my process was when I first began to write. Um, when I first began to write, I forced myself to sit down in front of the keyboard, the keyboard, and just kind of uh, see if I can make something happen. I no longer think of it that way. I no longer try to make anything happen. I think of it as a flow. I think of it as an energy that I tap into. Uh, because over the years, I've learned that I can tell the difference between good writing and bad writing on whether or not I was in the flow or whether or not I was trying to make the flow happen. And as I, I became more uh, aware and conscious of how different my writing was, I realized that I need to step away from trying to force anything to happen and just let it flow. So as you stay naturally curious throughout your day, the words do start flowing. Now, in the beginning, if you're just starting to become, uh, you know, a writer and you're just starting to write stuff down, as you're thinking stuff through, just get like your notepad on your phone, open it up as you're thinking and just write your thoughts down. That's just start there. Write your thoughts down. Don't even think about whether it's a good thought, a bad thought. You can stick it in chapter. No, just, just write it down. Just start there. That's what I do. I'll write stuff down after thinking about a conversation, after a failure, after this, that, the other. I'll just open a notepad and just start writing whatever comes up. Just make your thoughts concrete on paper. And then sit down with it. Look at it. And I'll think, is this a quote? Can I just put this in a little snippet and just send it out into the world, see you know what comes of it? Uh, does this fit into something bigger, I want to say, in a book, something longer? And so I'll go from there. If it fits the topic of something that I want to write, I'll just stick it in a, a Word document and just leave it leave it alone for a little bit. And I'll kind of just sort through it and I'll have multiple projects that I'm working on because if I only work on one project at a time, it will take me a very long time to finish it. 
So I will get multiple projects going at the same time as the stuff comes, as it's flowing in, I'll look at all my projects and think, will it fit here? Will it fit better here? Will it make a better point here? And I'll just kind of sort through as it comes. And then I find that once I have an understanding of what it is that I want to say, and this line was really, really good, and it's triggering another line and another line and another line, I'll sit down and I'll just start writing and then I'll get an entire chapter out of it. And I'll get more stuff out of it and then maybe I'll get a paragraph that I think fits better in another project and I'll cut that and I'll paste it somewhere else and so I basically make it like a free flow of creativity and information coming from my mind because when I do that when I don't judge it when I don't go oh no that's not that's not I don't like that that's stupid that's this when I start judging myself in the process the flow stops the flow does the flow does not like being judged and it doesn't like you calling it crap so I will have a separate document for the stuff that I think isn't good enough yet or doesn't fit anywhere. And I'll just leave it there. And then I'll find that years later, I find something really valuable in that and I'll reword it and I'll use it somewhere else. So I respect what comes through. I honor what comes through. I thank what comes through. I don't know where it's coming from, but thank you, Creativity Gods, for sending it to me. I think of myself more as a pen rather than a creator, as in I'm creating it from nothing. I think of it as it's flowing from somewhere. So I kind of respect the process and just just write it down. It's okay. Maybe you don't understand it right now. Maybe it's not fitting in to whatever you're working on right now. Write it down. It might come come back around later when you're working on something else. Uh, last year in August, I finished an entire book in one month, which was the fastest I've ever written a book. I literally started it August 1st and wrote the very last word on August 31st. And I thought, this is so weird. I, I wow. wrote an entire book in one month. I've never done that before. That's amazing. But it just it just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And it just it just finished itself all on its own. And I thought, okay, well, that was new. And all the while, I have documents of books that that haven't finished and I've it, they've existed for like over 10 years and they, they're not even remotely done. So I don't control it. I don't force it. I don't judge it, which is very important because judgment kills creativity. And I just have a bunch of multiple docs going and whatever finishes first, hey, I guess you're the winner. <laughs> That's pretty much how I think of it. That's very interesting. And, and the idea of simultaneous work sounds like an even more gargantuan task, but it's uh, it's an it's interesting to hear about the process of of kind of bringing something, or as you said, acting as the pen um, and and allowing the things to flow onto the page. And um, do you find in the in the writing process that a lot of things don't make the final cut? Is your is your cutting room floor covered in in things that didn't make the final cut for the worst, or do you find that? If you sit long enough with things and you let them distill down, uh, that they 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 come together, they find their place. I think most of the time they find their place. Sometimes stuff will be out of place and it just won't feel right. So I'll just cut it and stick it in the random doc and just leave it alone for a while. And every once in a while, when I feel like okay, I haven't written in a while and nothing's really coming to me, I'll open the random the random doc and I'll read through all the old stuff to see what is jumping out at me as something that could be quickly revised and then it would work. So sometimes the editing, I feel like the editing process and the writing process are two completely different processes. And if you're trying to write and edit at the same time, you're going to stop your flow. That's something I learned very early on. Every time I would sit down with a critical mind trying to edit while I was trying to write, I noticed that I would get frustrated. 
uh, it would stop the flow. I couldn't write anymore. I had to step away from the computer. So I will do all flow. And then when I'm in editing mode, I will sit down and I will edit. And I make sure that those are two completely separate things because they don't mesh well, at least not for me. Sure. And it's so funny you say that because I am reminded of a professor that I had when I was in college and he advised the exact same thing. And it was a technical writing course that I was taking at the time, but his philosophy, and I remember this um, so vividly because of the the props he used, but he came, he came to the front of the class and he had a hat on and on the hat was a W. And he said, this is my writing hat. This is when I, when I write, right. And then he said, and he said, whatever goes on the page goes on the page. It doesn't matter about punctuation. It doesn't matter about spelling. It doesn't matter about syntax or grammar or anything. What, what, what is there goes on the page took that hat off and put on a completely different hat, looked absolutely ridiculous, and it had a big E (laughs) on it. And he said, and this is my editor hat. This is when I go back and I clean things up. And so to hear you say that now, I mean, talk about, you know, a a learning cycle. This was 15, 20 years ago um, that that I had that experience with him. And to hear you say that that's exactly how you write really just kind of drives that point home in my mind. So it's very interesting. Sure, because I think they they definitely are two different processes in the brain. I think that free-flowing creative energy is very childlike. It's very open. It's okay being silly, being goofy. It wants to kind of play with the words. It wants to kind of create with the words. And that's very different than an editor who looks at it as, no, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't go with this sentence. This, you know, and wants to rearrange everything or change this word into this word. That's, I feel like that's more left brain while the creativity and flow and the poetry is more right brain. And I think if you're trying to do both at the same time, they kind of start punching each other. So maybe just pick one. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think your judgment kills creativity ideas. I mean, because an editor is a judge, right? An editor is there to decide what stays and what goes. It is judgment in an acceptable form, as it were. Um, But the writer and creativity, I mean, those things go hand in hand together. So the idea that one stifles the other is is certainly true. If you're in editing mode and in the meantime, it's something in the back of your mind is chewing on something else, I'm sure it disrupts your editing process. Maybe it's for a good reason, Mm -hmm. but it still gets in the way. One tip I will give people if um, they're having a hard time writing, uh, you can do this during your quote unquote desert period, as I like to call it, where nothing's really flowing in and you're just kind of like feeling like you have writer's block. I don't really believe in writer's block. I call it a desert period. Um, So what you can do is uh, open the document. You have stuff written. Just sit there and read what you've already written. Just read it over like you would be reading it as just a reader and see if anything that you've already written triggers more stuff. And if nothing comes, okay, close it, walk away from it. The next day, open it up again, read it again. Sit with it for about 15 minutes. See if anything comes up. If it doesn't, okay, close it. Do it again the next day. You keep doing that until one day when you're reading something, it triggers another idea because you're not thinking the same exact way every single day. You're in a different state. You're in a different mood. You're in a different everything. And that could change your flow very easily. So give yourself 15 minutes with your own work, read through it, think about it, 
think about reading it as a reader, as someone else, and see what kind of questions would you have about this work? Like, what would that bring up for you? Like, like engage your curious mind about if you were reading this as a book, where would this lead you down mentally? And sometimes that helps stimulate some stuff and it'll get you writing. So if you're, if you're ever feeling like you're, you're blocked, that, that tip usually helps. So if you dedicate 15 minutes to rereading your work, Think of it from someone else's perspective. See what kind of questions you would come up if you were reading it as someone else, and then see if that triggers anything. Sure. Yeah, and that's a great that's great advice. I mean, it reminds me of the old saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, but you know, no man ever crosses the same stream twice because neither the stream nor the man are the same. And exactly, it, it's the same concept. It's the idea of going back to something old, something that you think you've seen before. I mean, you put it on paper; it, you've seen it, um, but. But taking another another look, looking at it from a different perspective, looking at it as a different person who's made a series of decisions and things that have happened in their life in the interim, and those very same words can elicit something completely different uh, in the future. I think that's I think that's great advice. I want to give you the opportunity. And Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, and you could have gone through something in the morning that kind of triggers a different experience for you with those same words. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you are writing for, you know, for the for the reader, if you're writing something that you hope one day to have read by someone, um, there's there's an experience that they're going to have from those words and who knows where they are and how they experience things. It's it's one of the beautiful things about art in general. And I would say that writing is certainly an art uh, is that there's different people in different places in different days, even the same person on two different days or two different times in the same day is going to see a piece of art or read a piece of art uh, completely differently than somebody else. And I think that's, I think that's one of the beautiful things about yep. it. Um, Absolutely. So I want to give you uh, an opportunity. I know you said that you, uh, you had jotted down some ideas. If there's um, anything that you'd like to uh, leave the listeners with before we go into kind of the last little fun bit of the episode. Sure. Um, the only thing I, I jotted down was um, when I was thinking of cognitive inflexibility, um, I wanted to bring up, and I didn't get a chance to bring it up because I think we flowed in a, a, a different direction, but I wanted to bring up the idea that we have a filter in our mind and that you and I both can get the same exact information, just as you had said, and that's why it reminded me of it, that you and I can get the same exact information, but it's filtered differently through our minds because of how our filters have been shaped throughout our lives. You and I have had very different experiences um, growing up, different childhoods, different teen years, different relationships, different experiences, different everything that has shaped our filters to be exactly as they are. And no two filters are the same. So when we receive a piece of information, you hear it differently, I hear it differently, I take it in differently, you take it in differently. And when we try to come together and I try to um, convince you that my way of seeing the information is correct and you try to convince me that your way of seeing the information is correct, we will never be able to reach that same exact place only because our filters are completely different. And I think that we're going to have to come to a point where we decide that's okay. I feel like in this social media age, we're all very, very hell-bent on convincing the other person that my experience is the true experience. And the thing is that everybody's experience is the true experience because they're experiencing it. 
And my experience being real does not negate your experience being real, even though it's two completely different experiences and it's based on the same exact event. I think that we're all kind of living in this multitude of experiences, trying to uh, shout at each other that my experience is real and valid and you should validate it. And that's true, except it's all valid because we're all experiencing it in our own different ways based on our own filters. So I think we need to bring philosophical discord back and philosophical discourse, excuse me, not discord, definitely not discord, uh, discourse back where we can talk to each other again with an open mind and understand that we have different filters and that's okay. Yeah. If there's, if there's one thing, if, if, if you listened all this way and didn't take anything else away from it, <laughs> that is a beautiful, a beautiful, um, sentiment the idea of philosophical discourse and that it's okay and as you said I, I think the thing that'll stick with me from from this um at least at first pass is you know there, there's nothing at stake here that philosophical discourse is by its very nature not intended to rob another person of anything and i think that's i think that's great um and i i hope that as as you know the listeners part ways with this and, and go on to the rest of their lives that they'll take that with them because it is certainly a um, something to aspire to for all of us to be certain so great I'm, I'm glad you brought that up um thank you okay so do you we uh let's see we have a handful of lightning round questions if you want to go through those cool um, we can do that so we'll jump right into it first question uh what is the most recent book you read or are reading uh, currently, I'm reading uh, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it's a memoir about, which is very, very fitting to our conversation. It's a memoir about a woman who feels mentally, emotionally, socially trapped in a cage. And she kind of learns in her 40s to break out of everything that she has ever known and to choose different decisions and to choose different habits and become and live the life that she has always wanted to live and not be stuck in society's cage. So that was very, that's basically a book that's very on point to what we're talking about. Oh, fantastic. I'll, I'll definitely add it to the list. I think I may have heard of it in passing, but I don't know that I've ever heard, uh, you know, a, a synopsis quite, quite that way. So, um, great. Second question. If you could have dinner with any person alive or dead, who would it be? Um, my 16 year old self wants to say Emily Dickinson because I was obsessed with her as a teenager, but I'm going to say, uh, Hypatia of Alexandria. She is the world's, uh, well, I want to say world's first known female philosophers and astronomers. And she was a professor in a Neoplatonist school of philosophy in Alexandria, Egypt, like 2000 years ago something to that effect and she was an incredibly smart woman and i would love to sit down with her and have a conversation about what she thought because nothing survived from her so we basically know that she was this total badass but no one knows what she actually thought and what she actually taught so that would be my answer no and that's great that's that that's a very interesting answer and i would love to be a fly on the wall in, uh, in fact i'll tell you what i'll be the waiter at that dinner <laughs> for you two uh because i would love to hear that conversation even if it was okay, a, deal. A, as an observer <laughs> all right number three uh if you could be president any event in history what would it be okay so 
Am I present? Do I get to do anything or am I just observing? It is It is your world. We are just here to hear the answer. So you take it however you like. Okay. Because uh, if I can actually <clears throat> move around at this place, this physical historical location, I would pick the Library of Alexandria, which was the world's biggest library in ancient times and had scrolls from every single philosopher and culture and place and it was housed there and it was huge and it got burned down and all of that work got lost and that just drives me completely crazy as a philosopher that all of that work got lost and I would like to spend a good maybe 20 years there reading through all of those different scrolls and hopefully I would know the languages but yeah that's that's my answer I would go spend spend a decade or two there and just read everything that got lost no that's that's perfect and you know what because it's my it's my podcast i say that if you can get back to the library of alexandria you get to know all the languages on all the scrolls so that's the that's the <laughs> okay. new all right thanks <laughs> and and i would say that my my fluff answer is woodstock Oh, of course. I mean, I, I think, yeah. I mean, two completely different experiences, but who knows <laughs> Who knows what you might leave Woodstock with. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, number four. Um, what book, article, paper, movie, or TV show would you recommend that would change someone's life? Uh, hands Down, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Have you read that one? I have not. It is on my list, though. It's actually, I think it, it might actually be in my Amazon cart at the moment. It it will definitely change your life, especially you. You are you are a thinker. You will definitely read that book and then probably reread it again and think about it for for a long, long time. No, that's that's great. And and listener, if you're at home and listening to this, don't worry. All of the books that Emily <laughs> has mentioned here, Alan Watts's book, uh, this one, Man's Search for Meaning, I will put all of those in the show notes so you will have those accessible. Don't don't worry. I'm taking notes on your behalf. Um, let's see. Number five. What is something you used to think one way about but have since changed your mind entirely? I think uh, Man's Search for Meaning helped me uh, with this one which is the idea that we can be happy forever and that that's really the goal. Um, because Man's Search for Meaning kind of talks about suffering with a purpose. And um, I don't want to get too much into that book because I think I, wa I want you to read it and, and come to your own conclusions about it. But it really helped me change my view on... Do you remember... Um, did you ever see The Matrix? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I know it's a silly question, but, you know, it's, it's been, been like a long years. time, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's this scene in The Matrix that everyone overlooks. Like whenever people talk about that movie, they never, ever talk about that scene because it was the small, like one minute scene. And I think it went over people's heads, but I think it was probably the most powerful scene in that entire movie. And I walked away from it really thinking about that scene for far too long. And so it's the scene in the high rise when Neo is captured by the agents. Do you remember the scene mm -hmm. where he's being rescued? Okay, so before he's rescued, the agent is telling him about how this is not the original Matrix, that the first Matrix is actually a utopia where everyone was made happy and everyone was given everything they ever wanted so that they would not be suspicious that they were in a Matrix. But it completely backfired on them and a whole bunch of people uh, committed suicide and went insane because too much happiness 
is not in our programming, our natural programming. This, along with Man's Search for Meaning, ultimately changed my view that we uh, are not created to be perfectly in bliss for the rest of our lives. Uh, there will always be war and trauma and suffering because that is the nature of humanity. And when we try to fight that nature, we make it worse. We add to the trauma and suffering by trying to end the trauma and suffering with more war and more fighting against the other guy. And so, I mean, that doesn't mean that we have to be hopeless and accept that the world sucks, but, uh, Ultimately, it means that the idea that we can achieve perfect bliss and happiness through manipulating the outside world is a very, very false notion. If we had it, if we were in perfect bliss, we would go completely insane. Sure. We, we have to suffer for a purpose, not purposeless suffering, not mindless suffering, but we have to strive. There has to be challenge. There has to be some kind of reaching for more, reaching for better reaching for that expansion of mind, that expansion of whatever it is, because that hurts. It is not easy to expand. Growth is painful, and but it has a purpose. And as long as it has a purpose, it is uh, pain that is worth it. And I think man's search for meaning will, will lead you to that conclusion as well. Well, I will certainly vault it right to the top of the list because it sounds, it sounds like exactly my kind of book. So um, wonderful. Last last question in the, in the lightning round. So what world record do you think you could and or would be able to break? Um, overthinking the crap out of something, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, I mean, that is the truest, the, probably the truest answer to that question I've ever heard. I think that, I don't know if you might give me a challenge on this one. Uh, <laughs> we might have to switch off on, on gold and, and silver on this one, but... But I think that uh, because I like to see different views on on subjects, I like to hear different sides. I even if I don't hear it, I will go sit there and I will think about it, and I will consider alternatives, and I will take the history of the thing into account, and I will think about how it, it would have worked in this way and that way. And I think, yeah, probably overthinking the crap out of things. Yeah, that's my final answer. I think you're right. I think we might have to trade that one off because it's always after the conversation or after the moment where you come up with 16 different things you could have right. or should have said. That's that's how you know uh, that you're overthinking it, I think. Um, well, wonderful. I'll give you uh, one one more opportunity if there's anything else that, uh, that you'd like to pass along to everybody um, before we wrap up here. Um, never stop being curious. Whatever it is the other person tells you, think of it in curious terms. Hmm, why, why, what would make this person think this way? What would make this, what in their life could have caused them to come to this conclusion? If you stay curious with the other person, the other person doesn't feel as threatening. It doesn't feel like it's a battle for uh, the trophy that no one ever wins. Uh, just stay curious. Great. Well, Emily, tell people where they can find your works, uh, where they can where they can follow you on social media, and how they can get in contact with you. Sure, uh, most of my books are available on Amazon, paperback, um, hardcover, Kindle version. Um, most of them are available uh, around the world. 
So if you are in different countries, they are also available through Amazon, if Amazon is available in your country, because Amazon is my distributor. So if they're uh, available in your country, then you can get my books in your country as well. They're also available in books, other bookstores as well. My website is uh, www.maroutin.com, M-A-R-O-U-T-I-A-N. You can find me on Instagram at emaroutin, at emaroutin. And um, yeah, that's where I will post these quotes that come to me out of, you know, over analyzing the crap out of things. And I'll post excerpts from books and, and um, yeah, and I will post definitely from this podcast as well. Great. And and to all the listeners out there, I think I said this in the, the last episode that I did about one of Emily's wonderful quotes is, if you have not and do not uh, follow her on Instagram, you are missing out on a treasure trove of wonderful words that can't help but make you think and oftentimes send you away feeling far better uh, than you were when you arrived. So Emily Maruchin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, your words will certainly resonate with, with me for many, many years to come, and I hope they will with the listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. And I hope you write that book that you are thinking about writing. Well, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.